0: Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 13, the message translation. So hear these words from God, words to build a life on. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain jump and it jumps but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor, and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I have gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end understanding will reach its limit. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't yet see things clearly, We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly, just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly, love extravagantly, and the best of the three is love. This is the word of God. So we continue with our series on
1: Paul, discussing the letters that scholars believe he definitively wrote. And 1 Corinthians is the third one. We began with 1 Thessalonians, and J.J. worked with Galatians last week and today we're going to look at first Corinthians. A few weeks ago I came to a point where uh, I just for lack of better word or explanation just had a full-on emotional meltdown in front of a group of people and all I could think in that moment is I have to get away by myself. I've got to get away and I've never done that before. A lot of you probably haven't either. We don't. I was just sharing with Elmer. We don't normalize that that need of needing a day or two away from everything. Um, it would be nice if we could do that more, because we do need to do self care, right? So let me read this to you. I'll, I'll be curious to see who picks up on this. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Anybody? Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made. No one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is love. Right. So you tell me, because that song's been in my head all week long. What are some of your favorite love songs? And, and when I, I I'm going to get specific with you guys, okay? Not only tell me your favorite love song, but give me a lyric or two and why that's your favorite love song. I'm not asking for essays, just a sentence or two. So there's no doubt I, this week that um, for whatever reason, I have struggled to put together this sermon and when I say that I've struggled to put together this sermon what I'm saying is we're talking about being loving and kind and patient and selfless and giving and wonderful to people that you love and I haven't really been that way that this week it's been like a test right like a test and this morning was really tough it just really was like oh, yeah 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 I can't believe I'm going to have to teach about love in front of my husband I'm sorry. (laughs) So you probably know this already, but let's just briefly go into this. The four types of Greek uh, love from the Greek in the Bible. They're the eros, the sexual or romantic love. And this is used one time in the New Testament. It happens to be in 1 Corinthians. Uh, So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. That word there is eros. There's also storge. This is what Martha and Mary had for one another and their brother Lazarus. Uh, It's also found in Romans 12.10 where we read that that we we as believers are to be devoted to one another with brotherly affection. And then there's philia, philia. And it's the type of intimate love in the Bible that most Christians practice toward each other. It's friendship. But it's not just acquaintance love. I don't think that I knew that until this week. This is not just, I see you and wave at you on Sunday morning. This is deeper than that. This is the kind of love that we're called to practice with one another in fellowship, in community. It means that we know things about each other. You know some of my hurts. I know some of your hurts. I know that a particular date is going to be hard for you. That kind of love. It's an emotional bond. It means beloved or dear, someone dearly loved or prized in a personal, intimate way. This word, philia, uh, where we get the word Philadelphia, by the way, uh, comes from John thirteen thirty five. 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is a whole word in and of itself. We don't, we're not going to go into it today, but this is just really good. And then there's agape. And for, with a show of hands in the room, how many of you were told that agape is emotionless? This is God's love, and it has no emotion. It just is. I'm the only Southern Baptist in the room. I was told that my whole life. That it is a will, it's an, act of, it's, an, it's, a, it's an act of love, it's the will to love no matter what. It doesn't involve emotions, you know, I don't like you today, there's none of that, it's just love and that's who God is. And that always bothered me and then I started doing some work on it this week and it does not say that at all. So I don't know where that came from, but it means affection and goodwill and love and benevolence. It's not emotionless, that's emotions. 1 Corinthians is Paul's third letter, and so let's look a little bit at what's going on in the Corinthian church at the time. Now remember, we're in the decade, we're in the 50s of the common era. Jesus has been gone for about 20 years, and these are all seven of these Pauline letters are written in this decade. The Gospels have not been written yet. The Gospels, Mark, is the very first one to be written, and it's still 20 years away. So keep that in mind. So what's going on in Corinthians 20 years after Christ? Well, Paul, along with Timothy, Titus, and Apollos, they spent 18 months there trying to establish a faith community. Now, this city was almost completely Gentile. It did have some Jewish people, but it was predominantly Gentile. It was cosmopolitan. It was multi-ethnic. It was prosperous. It was religiously pluralistic, According to N.T. Wright, it was accustomed to visits by impressive traveling public speakers and obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. Couldn't help but think about America as I read that. The population was around 80,000. And for Paul, Corinth was more important than Athens. Corinth was a Greco-Roman hybrid. The early Hellenistic city was thoroughly Romanized, with a Roman administration and architecture. This hybrid model in Corinth is important because of the divisions this will cause. A little bit of Greek, a little bit of Roman. Now we got some Jesus up in here. It's going to cause some tensions, especially over sexuality. This was a paganized culture if there ever was one. Paul was trying to get them to see that when living in the pagan world, they should see everything through the lens of the cross. They should see everything through the lens of community. Not my rights, not what's best for me, but what is best for all of us. The believers in Corinth were divided into factions because they had all been taught by different people. Because like Paul came for a while for those 18 months and then Apollos would come in and then Titus would come in and Timothy would come in and everybody had a different style of teaching and probably said things in a little bit different ways. Like we all have our favorite teachers, right? Our favorite preachers that we like to listen to. Uh, we just, we get, we like their voice. That voice is something that says something to us that, that does something for our soul, for our spirit, Um and that's what was going on there. And Paul is trying to tell them, because this has caused divisions among them, he's trying to say, look, I, Titus, Timothy, and Apollo, Apollos, we are irrelevant in this. What's important is the supremacy of Christ. And if, as long as we are pointing you to Christ, as long as we are teaching you the gospel, and as long as we are teaching you how to love one another well, focus on that. Don't get so tied up in personalities. We live in this culture of, these, of this um, Christian uh, celebrity, right? And, and some of those can be good, and they live good lives, and they're worth the follow. But we get so tied up in celebrity. Paul's point is not that we shouldn't have preferred mentors in our faith. We are, it's okay to have a preferred mentor. Marcus Borg says, the gospel is Christ crucified, not loyalty to a particular teacher or a humanly constructed system of thought. These preferred teachers do not need to supersede the teaching of Christ. Take them off the pedestal. They don't belong there. Probably didn't ask to be there, although some of them probably do. If they point you to Jesus, good. But don't make them your idol. The Corinthians were split, and Paul is pleading for unity. Where can they find unity? In the gospel of Jesus. I could hear the gospel of Jesus more clearly through Titus, but you hear it more clearly through Timothy, and that's okay. That's okay. The Corinthians were also practicing sexual perversions. Greek and Roman sexual perversions were really kind of the same, but with different motivations. And that's a whole other topic for another day that I hope we can get into in our deconstruction series in October. Paul was calling them to a different way. They were also suing each other. Now we know this scripture, right? Don't take one another to court, that kind of stuff. But what was really going on here was the wealthy were the ones taking the less advantage to court. The less advantaged, the marginalized, they couldn't afford an attorney. They couldn't afford to bribe a judge. They couldn't afford to take off work. But the wealthy were suing the less advantageous. And Paul was saying, hey, how about you try to work that out instead? Because you have some power over them. You have some privilege over the poor. Work it out among them, amongst yourselves. And while the Corinthian church was most likely filled with poor believers, the wealthy were mixed in there with them. The majority of the Corinthian church probably were poorer people. But there were wealthy among them, and we know this from 1 Corinthians. Paul reminded them also in 1 Corinthians that their bodies are now a temple and that that temple is now filled with the Holy Spirit and to treat it as such. Paul also talks about marriage and divorce and singleness and Food sacrificed sacrifice to idols, and he also talks about communion. And I want to park here for just a couple of minutes because this one was fascinating to me. We know in First Corinthians that Paul tells them, you know, uh, when you come together to eat the to partake in communion, that to do it in a way that's worthy. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Were any of you taught this in a very scary way growing up with communion? Like... Yeah, like you gotta be, you got to be right with God. you got to be right with God before you, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble because you might be unworthy, so don't be unworthy. Get that thing right with God. There's not a thing in the world wrong with praying and, 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 and having that moment with God before we take communion, but that's not what Paul is saying here. Marcus Borg says in first century Christianity, the Lord's Supper was a real meal. It was not just a pinch of bread and a sip of wine but it was a full meal shared by the community of believers. But in Corinth, it had ceased to be a common meal. The wealthy, who didn't have to work, were able to gather together sooner in the day than the poor working class, than the blue collars. And so while they got there early, the wealthy were drinking the best wine first. They weren't drinking the Aldi's 298 stuff, even though that stuff is good. Don't knock it. It's good. They were drinking the best wine. They were eating the best food. They were leaving the Aldi's and the hot dogs for the poor people. And Paul is telling them, stop that. That's not okay. Could you just slow your roll a little bit and save some of the good wine for those that have worked all day long, that do not have your privilege, that do not have your status? Could you save it for them? Save some of the good food. Won't you eat the hot dogs? Save some of the good food for the rest of the people and then enjoy it together as a community. That's what Paul is saying in these verses, to examine themselves to make sure that they are not eating this in an unworthy manner. Paul talks to them about spiritual gifts. We are all one body with many members, but yet we are one. Paul talks about the resurrection, resurrection of Christ and and in the middle of all of this we have the beauty that is 1 Corinthians 13. When the teaching team and I were working to put this series together, the point was is that we would each take one of the Pauline letters and come up with one central idea, one big purpose for that particular letter. And so for me, this is the main point of 1 Corinthians. It's this love. It's love. It's not what we do in our bedrooms and with whom. It's not which teachers are the best, and it's not which spiritual gift is the best. It's love. It's saving the best wine for those who come to communion a little later than you. Saving the best meat for those who come after you. It doesn't matter which teacher is the best. As long as they point us to Christ and as long as they love well and teach us to love well, that is what matters. Because it all comes back to love. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. Who wants to listen to a creaky, rusty gate? If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps but I don't love, I'm nothing. This word faith right here in verse 2, it is a continuous aspect. It continues and it continues and it continues. It means a faith that keeps on keeping on and keeps on removing mountains and removing one mountain after the other and removing one mountain after the other. It's not just faith. It's keeping on. It's keeping. Okay? It's dark right now. I have no idea what's right in front of me, but I'm going to keep on. I'm going to keep on. I don't see it. I don't see it. But I'm going to keep on anyway by faith. That's the kind of faith Paul is talking about. In the Passion Translation, when the message says love never gives up, the Passion says love is large. I'm a word person and I'm an Enneagram Four and I get all of my feelings wrapped up in this stuff, but love is large just gets me. It's like you said, Tim, earlier, that it's not doing just a little bit what was expected it's going above that, it's going above it. Love cares more for others than for self. That's what, the, that's what the message says. The passion says is incredibly patient. I am not the most patient person on the planet. It is one of my biggest struggles and hurdles, especially this morning. The word there, patient, means And particularly in incredibly difficult relationships. Is it not true that some people we can just be patient with a little bit easier than others? That had nothing to do with you. (laughs) I promise. You're pretty good to be patient with. I have to give you that. I have a child that refuses to speak to me right now. Did not come to my wedding. Patience, even in incredibly difficult relationships. You have some of those? You have incredibly difficult relationships? You just keep on. I send those text messages. I love you. Hey, I miss you. Hope you're okay. I get nothing back, but that's not the point. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. In the Passion Translation, it says, it refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. Enneagram fours struggle with envy. My Enneagram fours in the house. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Love doesn't strut, and it doesn't have a swelled head. The Passion says, love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. Love doesn't force itself on others. In the the Passion it says, love does not traffic in shame and disrespect. Love does not traffic in shame or disrespect. It isn't always me first. It doesn't fly off the handle. Not easily irritated or quick to take offense. I'm the first one to take offense. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. The passion says here, love is a safe place of shelter. Am I safe? Are you safe? Takes pleasure in the flowering of truth for it never stops believing the best for others. Puts up with anything. Now I want to expound on this just a little bit because when you see that line up there, it looks like, okay, is that calling me to be a doormat? I'm confused. It's not. I don't think it is. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. That's what that means. You got defeated right that moment, get up and do it again. Get up and do it again. And what we've been talking about, this narrow path that we do in community together. When I fall and we're on this narrow path together, you're there with me. You pick me up. You raise me up. Josh Groban reference, sorry. Sorry. I hate that song, just for the record. (laughs) Anyway, we do this together. When my hope is small, when my faith is nil, you're with me on that narrow path, and we get up, and you say, Melinda, we got this. We can do this. Come on, let's go. Trust God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. There will come a day when spiritual gifts won't be needed anymore. You won't need a preacher or a teacher. You won't need faith or hope anymore. Come on up. The worship team asked me when they could come up. I said, I have no idea. I don't know how I'm going to wrap it up. This is how we're wrapping it up. We're a messy church, right? (laughs) And even in the mess, we are loved. There'll be a day when faith and hope won't be necessary anymore because it'll all be psyched. But while we're here, and while it's so stinking hard just to put one foot in front of the other a lot of days, We do it together. We do it together. Because that's what love is. That's what love is.